Hey, true crime listeners, I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome to our show. I'm so glad that you clicked on us today. And if you've been following us and you listen to our cases every week, I am truly so grateful for you. You're in the right place. We want to do everything we can to share stories with you that are so important to talk about. As a daughter and mom duo, we hope that you'll feel right at home with our casual storytelling and also help us support these organizations that we support each week. True Crime Exposed wants to not only expose those disgusting people in the world that do these horrific crimes, but most of all, we want to give each victim's story exposure. By supporting the life of anyone who is taken from us unjustly, we are being victim advocates. We want to be a voice for those that no longer have one, and we want to help you guys stand up and help fight these crimes through different organizations each week that relate to the case that we're sharing with you. Stick around for all that info at the very end of this episode. Are you ready for today's case? I'm going to jump in here real quick from the beginning and just warn you all that this is such a hard case. It is a case about a child and some really horrific things happen in it. So if you need to skip today's episode, that is totally understandable. But this is a case that is important to be talked about. Not only do we need to share this victim's name for who he was, not what happened to him, but actually share who he was with you. We need to talk about the trial and the controversy in it. It's a case that could break you, that will hurt you to hear. And there's so much info in it that I actually had to do it in two parts. So much of my info in today's episode comes from Denise Fergus's book called I Let Him Go. And if you're interested in finding out more information on this case after you listen today, I highly, highly recommend this book. Please go buy it, read it. It is incredible. I cannot stop reading it. And there's another book called My James by his father, Ralph. But I wasn't able to find anywhere that they had it on like an ebook or I could get it on my phone. And I didn't have time to order it before this. So I am very interested in reading that. So that's another suggestion to read on this case. I will be buying the book here soon. So Denise Fergus grew up in Kirkby, which is a town in Merseyside, England. Having a family of her own was one of her dreams. She couldn't wait. She had enjoyed a fun and easygoing childhood in her own home. Her parents, Eileen and Hugh, had 13 children, so Denise got to grow up with 12 siblings. They played and they ran around the streets together, living just a carefree life. 
And as her siblings grew older and started having babies, she became the best aunt. Her family started calling her the baby hogger. She loved babies and with everything inside her, she could not wait to have her own. So when she was 18 years old, she met Ralph Bulger at a nightclub in her hometown called Kirkby Town. She was falling for him hard and fast. She had gone out with her sister that night and some friends and they ran into a group that Ralph was in. They hit it off that night and their romance became pretty serious very shortly after. And less than two years after they started to date seriously, she found out that she was pregnant with their first baby and she was so excited. She was over the moon. Their families weren't quite as excited as she was because they were hoping that the couple would be married before having children, but Denise did not care. She had always wanted to be a mother. She felt like this was her calling. This is what she had been waiting for. So she soaked in her pregnancy and looked forward to the days that she would hold her baby in her arms. At 21 years old, she felt labor coming on and it was time to rush to the hospital. She was 38 weeks and ready to meet her baby. Denise and Ralph were both anxious and nervous to bring their first baby into this world, but most of all, they were ecstatic. They already loved this baby more than they thought possible. So once they were admitted into the hospital, everything was going well. She got hooked up to the monitors and things were running smoothly. After a bit of being hooked up and patiently waiting for one of the most exciting moments of her life, The nurse just gave her this look, kind of a look of panic. Denise was shocked, wondering what the nurse's problem was. And then the nurse leaves and she brings a doctor back in. The doctor does a few checks on her and that's when he looks at her and says, I'm really sorry, but your baby seems to be dead. She's shocked and confused and she cries out, wondering what is happening. The doctor actually then backtracks a bit and he's like, well, the baby might not be dead, but there's a very high chance that it is. Jeez. I wonder if they um, they lost the baby's heart tones on the strip or something. They must have for him to think it was dead. Yeah. It was also in 1989. So I don't know if like, do you think the monitoring was a little less like reliable back then or no? I don't think so. I mean, I still think they had the monitoring, how they wrapped that around the belly. Oh, okay. Yeah, she said it said that she put the stuff on the belly. Yeah, just the same, you know, as you do now. So yeah, they must have lost like a the heartbeat or something. And he he thought it was dead. But when she kind of freaked out, he was like, well, maybe not. Mm-hmm. So it's February 22nd, 1989, and Denise gave birth to Kirstie Bulger. The nurse wrapped Kirstie up. She said, it's a girl and she's perfect. And this huge relief flushed over Denise's entire body. She's like, okay, so she's okay then. And the nurse looks a little shocked and she's like, oh no, I didn't mean she's alive. I'm sorry. Ralph and Denise crumbled. They sat there looking at their beautiful daughter. And as Denise cradled her in her arms and kissed her and loved her for as many moments as she could before Kirstie was taken. They sat there in the hospital, just kind of stuck in their own grief. 
And in that moment, Ralph knew that he loved this woman. I mean, he had always known, but he was hit with the harsh reality of what they had just lost. And he knew he wanted to build a family with Denise. So he looked at her and he asked her to marry him. She replied with a yes, and in their embrace afterwards, they just sunk into each other, feeling gratitude that at least they had one another. A few days later, Ralph and Denise returned home. It wasn't fair, and when she looked at the empty basket where Kirsty should have been sleeping, she thought to herself, quote, This is the worst day of your whole life, Denise. It will never get worse than this, end quote. And how she would later on wish that these words were true. But a couple years later, it did get worse. So much worse. Because in this moment, she was a mother of one without a child to hold. But in two years, she would actually be a mother of two with no children by her side. In the meantime, she tried to heal the best way that she could. For a while, the thought of being around another child was unbearable. And then one day her sister called her up and nervously asked her if she could bring her baby over to meet her aunt. And when baby Natalie came over, Denise was filled with so much love for her niece, she did not want to put her down. So her sister asked her if she wanted to babysit her later on while she attended a wedding that Denise was just not up for at the time. Denise agreed, and while she laid down holding that little baby all night that she could not put down, there was a knock at the door. It was actually the midwife doing a postpartum checkup. She looked at Denise in so much shock when she answered the door with a baby in her arms, and then she desperately started asking her all these questions like, why do you have this baby? What did you do? Yeah. Yeah, the midwife thought that Denise was so overcome with grief that she went out and stole another child. That's weird. I mean, kind of. It would be shocking to show up and, like, she knew the baby had passed. Like, she she has has a baby. baby. But, I mean, I I don't think I would jump to that she stole another baby already. (laughs) Right. So Denise laughed and was like, no, no, this is just a misunderstanding. I am babysitting my niece. Her name's Natalie. But the midwife refused to leave until Denise was actually able to get her sister home from the wedding to confirm that this child was hers and was not a stolen baby. Wow. that that (laughs) Like it was extra. uh, Yeah. (laughs) So this was the first humorous moment that Denise had since losing her first child. And then just four months after she found out that she was pregnant again, she was overcome with both joy and fear. She vowed to do whatever she could to protect this baby. Her second chance at experiencing motherhood with a baby in her arms instead of burying her child. But of course, her first experience caused stress and anxiety to build all throughout her pregnancy. Denise and Ralph had been through so much to get here to starting their family So they decided to get married on her birthday, which was September 16th, and they were married in 1989 when she was 22 and Ralph was 23. And then the day came to go back to the hospital to give this a second go. She was so scared, but so excited to finally have a baby to hold at the end of all of this. And on March 16th, 1990, James Patrick Bulger was born weighing six pounds, three ounces, with blonde hair and blue eyes. Oh, he was a little guy. Yeah, he was little. 
<laughs> he was perfect to her. He was everything. And Denise says in her book that I read, quote, I often think back to that moment when I first held my baby boy and vowed he would never leave my sight, end quote. Denise always kept that promise. Her world revolved around her baby boy and she watched him like a hawk until one day, just before he was three years old, when she let go of his hand only for a few seconds, just to get some money out of her purse and pay for something at the store. James formed this incredible bond with both of his parents, Ralph and Denise. He loved them as they cared for him and they did an incredible job. And when he was still a tiny baby, James and Denise formed bonds that were more than strong because Ralph was young and all his friends were single. So he often would be out with them while Denise spent late nights cuddling and singing to her baby. James was a colic baby, and this can be such a hard stage for moms when their baby has colic, and it really did challenge Denise, but she cherished those memories of holding her baby, trying to soothe him for hours. She would do anything to face challenges with him again. So Denise explains James in her book as fizzing with life. He wasn't a grumpy baby. He wasn't a naughty kid. He was always happy quote, a cheeky little ray of sunshine, end quote. James always lived his life at 100 miles a minute. He never slowed down. Those little legs of his sprinted everywhere he went. And when you went to pick him up or give him a hug, he ran at you with everything he had. He was so loving. And while he was running everywhere he went, His thick blonde curls bounced and bounced everywhere. Denise loved his thick curly hair, and she still has a lock of it from his very first big boy haircut. He was so incredibly handsome when he got his little haircut that first time. He looked like a little grown-up. How was your baby getting so big already? I think we all feel that as parents. He loved simple things and was easily entertained, and he absolutely loved to be called clever and have all the praises in the world. He was a bright little boy, so smart. He was so capable of everything that he put his little mind to, and he was a people pleaser. He loved to make his parents happy and hated to make them upset, which reminds me a lot of my oldest, Charlie, because I think she's a little people pleaser. And these kind of children I feel like they just have a very sweet heart they do like they really care about others so one of James's best skills were his dance moves he loved to dance to Michael Jackson and he was good at it I mean what two-year-old doesn't look like beyond adorable dancing his favorite song to dance to when he was two years old was remember the time by Michael Jackson So February 12th, 1993, the Bulger family woke up to just another ordinary day. Denise woke James up and checked his bed to see if he had wet it and it was dry. So she praised him and gave him big kisses and cuddles and a round of applause. James was ecstatic. He was such a good boy. He didn't pee in his bed. He could see this made his mom so happy and he was so proud of himself. He hopped out of bed and ran into the kitchen just like he ran everywhere, screaming, I want Frosties. Denise explains in her book that this is his signature phrase in their family. He loved Frosties cereal. 
So in the mornings, Denise would pour him some Frosties into this little football bowl and he would take it over to watch TV while he ate. They always did this. It was their morning routine. He had his own little tiny table and tiny chairs that he could eat on. They would always watch cartoons. Some of his favorite cartoons were The Smurfs, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Thomas the Train Engine. This day was a Friday and Ralph was home with the family. He was actually going that day to help Denise's brother to set up some furniture that he had gotten. So after Denise gets James ready in this silvery gray tracksuit and a blue jacket, she puts his little feet into some tiny white trainers, which in England, I think they refer to shoes as trainers. He looked adorable and she couldn't help but smile as he ran off on the go yet again. She yelled into Ralph, asking him if he could take James with him to her brother Paul's house. It would be fun for him to go play with his cousins over there, she said, but Ralph thought it would be too much to handle. There were going to be dangerous tools around, and he didn't think he could watch James well enough while he helped set up the furniture. He was probably right, she thought, so she would just take James with her. So they decided to head out their front door and went on a short walk over to her mom's house. After James was born, they moved into her sister's house, which was just right down the road from her mom's. Her sister had moved in with her mom after their father had passed away just a little more than a year earlier. But when Denise and James arrive at her mom's, they discover that his grandma and his aunt were already out and about running some errands at the store. But some of her brother's kids were there and she sat down to let him play with his cousins for a bit. Ralph had come over and they all had some tea while they watched the kids have the time of their lives running around playing together. When it was time for Ralph to head over to Paul's, he yelled out to James, Tara, which means goodbye. And then he walked away and left to Paul's, not knowing that that would be the last thing he ever said to his son. Paul's fiance, Nicola, left a bit after Ralph arrived and headed over to Denise's mom's house. She was actually watching one of their other brother's kids, Vanessa, and had come to ask someone to go to the store with her. But when she realized that Denise's mom and sister were already gone, she just asked Denise if she wanted to come. Denise had nothing better to do, so she was like, sure, I'll come. She hurried over to get James ready, and she didn't want Nicola to be waiting on her, And when she went to grab James's stroller, she remembers in her book having the thought, quote, no need to bother with that, Denise. We will just be nipping in and out. You can just hold his hand, end quote. And as she was having this thought, Nicola yelled out to her that her boot was too small, meaning that the stroller would be too big to fit in her small car trunk. So it was okay. She would watch over James in the store and just make sure he didn't leave her sight. And with that, they headed over to the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle, which is nearby Kirkby where they lived. It wasn't far. It's still in Merseyside, England. The shopping center was so busy, just bustling with crowds of people. And by the time that they got to the end of their shopping trip, James was getting pretty restless. He wanted to run around and play, and he was definitely ready to leave. But Nicole and Denise thought that they would make one more stop. 
They wanted to get a nice treat to have with tea after the men got done with their projects at Paul and Nicola's house. So they decided to go and buy some pork chops. And they walk into A.R. Jim's butcher shop, which is on the lower floor of this shopping center. This center was big. It had more than 100 stores with multiple levels. They would stop here at the bottom level before heading home to eat and get ready for bedtime. Denise walked up to the butcher that was near the entrance while Nicola walked back to another butcher in the corner of the store. James had kept running around in circles while Denise told the butcher what chop she wanted. At the same time, she was telling James to stand still. He kept laughing while he did his little circles with his tiny little legs running as fast as they could. So Denise told him, come over here, come stand by me. And she grabbed his hand while the butcher wrapped up her meat. And then the time came, the time to pay. And she needed to let go of his hand and get into her purse. So she looked at him and said, quote, just stand right there by me. Don't move, okay? End quote. And he stood right there next to her thigh while she pulled her purse off her shoulder and went to get in it and grab her money. And as she finished up, she looked down and James wasn't standing by her leg anymore. She yelled over to Nicola asking where James went. Nicola didn't know, but she reassured Denise it would be okay. Like, He probably just barely got out the door. I'm sure he's playing right outside of the store. Denise's heart skipped a beat as she ran to the store, screaming out for James. But all she saw at the door were crowds of people. No little blonde boy running around and laughing. Just the hustle and bustle of the crowd. Where is he? Where could he be? In her book, she said, quote, I knew right then it was bad. I just knew. It was one of those moments where the world feels like it's turning in slow motion and you struggle to take in what has happened. I remember this little voice in my head. Not James, not my beautiful boy. This couldn't be happening to me. I didn't ever let him out of my sight, end quote. I feel like we all done that with our kids. You lose track of them in the store. They run around. They hide in the clothes in the store. Like, you do the best you can, you know, and you try not to let your kids out of your sight. But I, I she literally grabbed her money for 30 seconds and he was gone. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. And that's crazy that she had that feeling right away. Yes. It was bad. Like, something's something's not right here. As she got to that door, she frantically was looking left and right, left and right, wondering what direction she should run first to search for her baby. He couldn't have been far. It had been seconds since she last saw him. And with that, she ran out of the door and to her right. This right turn would later be one of her biggest regrets of her life, because had she turned left, she would have actually seen her baby trustingly hand in hand with two strangers being led out of the shopping center. But she didn't see that. She had no clue her son was being led straight out of the shopping center to his death. Oh my gosh. That's sad. I know. Poor baby. I mean, I... And it gets so much worse. I bet her sister-in-law or her brother's fiance was also looking around and I feel like once you start looking for a kid like lots of people start looking 
But that shopping center sounds like it was super busy. Yes. Had a hundred stores. Yeah. And it sounds like there were crowds of people, like a lot was going on. Yeah. She says, quote, I had a 50-50 chance of picking the correct way and no clue at all. End quote. She thought her baby was lost inside and she frantically ran around searching for him, thinking to herself, like, my baby is so smart. He will figure out a way to get someone to help him. And he might even be able to find the security counter by himself. So she ran there as fast as she could. She's screaming as she comes up to it. And she's like, my baby boy is lost in the mall. I cannot find him. He's three years old, right? He's two. He's one month away from being three. So his birthday's in March and this is February of 1993. The security counter tried to calm her, but they weren't realizing the severity of him being gone. They just weren't feeling that feeling that she was feeling deep within her gut. Something isn't right. So she started searching again all by herself. She could not sit there telling them what to do. She had to find him right now. She had lost sight of Nicola long ago when she ran off, and her and Vanessa couldn't keep up with the frantic running around, so... As she continued her search, she heard the security announce that there was a little boy missing over the speaker. Everyone be on the lookout. She entered one store looking through all the clothing racks, underneath things, and a worker walks up to her and asks her what she needs. Sweating and frustrated, she snapped back and she's like, I'm looking for my boy. I lost him. And the worker replies, oh yeah, don't worry, love. They have found him. He's on the second floor in a shop. So this relief flooded through Denise's body as she raced up to the shop. She could barely wait to grab James and hold him in her arms until they were out of the mall. This stress had exhausted her. She couldn't stand one more second without him. She ran into the shop they told her he was in, yelling at them, You have my boy, you've got him. No, we don't have him. And her heart sinks a little bit. And then she's quickly relieved again because they're like, I think he's in a shop just a couple of doors down. She's like, okay, at least someone has him. So she runs there, anxious to see his beautiful blue eyes looking up at her. And then the words pierce her when the shop says, we don't have him. He's not here. I I don't think he's been found. All the worry and the stress rushed back into her and almost knocked her over. She had to find him right now. I wonder why they kept telling her that he was at different stores. I know. That's so weird. Like, don't say that unless you know that he's found. Yeah. Like, oh, don't worry, honey. He's just up at this store. Yeah. So she starts running again. She's running around into almost every single shop. She's screaming out his his name. She's asking every stranger she passes if they've seen this little boy. She even runs out to Nicola's car to see if he somehow made it out there. Where was he? One security guard actually stopped her, told her to calm down. And he's like, there is nothing to worry about. We've never lost a child yet. The more she searched, the bigger the crowd that was helping her grew. But the minutes raced by with no James in sight. And then 40 minutes after he went missing, the police were called. And Mandy Waller heard a message over the radio while riding in her patrol car. There was a missing child. 
Mandy arrives to the shopping center and as she's walking in, starting to look for James, two young boys actually smash the glass of a store entrance and her focus on James' case breaks for a second and she chased down these boys to make sure that they get punishment for vandalizing the store. But Denise could not handle it. Her baby was missing. Who cares about these stupid teenagers? So she walks up to Mandy and without even realizing she's saying it, the words fly out of her mouth, quote, you are here to look for a two-year-old baby, not fix a bit of glass, end quote. This was coming from a distraught mother and Mandy understood where the frustration was stemming from, this overwhelming fear that Denise had. And Mandy actually ended up being by Denise's side this entire time. Mandy later on stated about the search, quote, we were just looking for a missing boy when in fact it was an abduction, end quote. Evening rolls around and just like that, all the shops start to close. And as they closed one by one, Denise starts becoming more panicked. The amount of places he could be in that center was narrowing, but he wasn't turning up. There were no more crowds. And as they shut down the entire shopping center, The emptiness felt like it stung. Why wasn't James in here? As the police made one more round of the empty shops, they told Denise it was probably time to head to the police station. But how could she leave? I mean, he clearly wasn't there, but how was she just supposed to leave without him when she brought him in there with her? It didn't feel right to just leave without her baby, but... She was out of options. No, that would not feel right. Yeah. That would be so devastating. Like she just had this overwhelming feeling that like she had to stay there till she had her baby back. Because if she leaves there and he's not there, where is he? Yeah, she she could think he's in a store, stuck in a store or something. Yeah. Like did they check everywhere possible? She probably doesn't want to think that it was an abduction. No, of course not. But Denise reluctantly agrees and she goes and gets into a patrol car that would take her to the Marshland Police Station. She was informed that Ralph was on his way, but she couldn't see him yet. They had some questions for her. Like, why weren't you watching him? Is he alone often? Would he ever get onto a bus alone? At this point, Denise had had enough of the ridiculous questions. Like, yes, she wanted to answer all of the questions and help them find her baby. That's the only end goal here in her mind. But can he get on a bus by himself? Really? He's two years old. Exactly. Do they know what two-year-olds can do? And that's that like broke her at that point. She says that exact same thing. She says, quote, you can sit here questioning me all you like, but it won't help bring my son home. I will answer anything you want to ask me. But at the end of the day, you'd better walk in with him. Why the hell are you asking me questions like, would he get on a bus on his own? He's two years old, end quote. And it's like, yeah, obviously. And in her book, I think she's like, and also what bus driver would let a two-year-old on a bus by themselves. Exactly. He's young. (laughs) Like, he's a young kid. It's not like he's six and can kind of navigate stuff. No. He doesn't know where he's at without his mom. Like, two, three-year-olds, they are very capable, but they're not capable of, you know, finding where they're going. 
Yeah, exactly. And like having direction. No. I mean, grown women can barely do that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I need my maps all the time. Uh. At this point, the police actually firmly believe that James left the center by himself and maybe got into some trouble. There was a canal very nearby and everyone was extremely worried about the water and him falling into it. I mean, I could see how he would get away and stuff. And like, if you weren't at a busy place, sure. Like if you were in a yard or something and he walked off, but like, it just seems like if it was really busy, people, you know, would be noticing if this toddler was walking around alone. Walking around by himself. Yeah. If I saw a baby walking around by themselves, I would actually grab them and take them to security, you know? Yeah. As I think most people would if they were alone. Right. But of course, no one's wanting to think the worst. So I think they're just assuming, okay, he left by himself. Where could he be? Yeah, I mean, you do have to explore all your options or all the things that could happen. No matter what happened, though, they know it's time to give Denise a break from the questioning. And the police decide to let her be alone for a bit. And then finally, after four hours of being at the station, she was allowed to see her husband, Ralph. She couldn't do anything except burst into tears when she saw him. She looked at him and she begged him, please find our baby. Please go find him. They had to have looked at cameras and stuff. They probably noticed that it wasn't her. Like, he, she let go of his hand and he wandered off. That had to have been on camera. Yes, we will see some very, like, eerie things when they do discover the cctv footage Mm. (laughs) yeah okay so you are right i'm jumping ahead no that's fine the sad reality is that while everyone is frantically searching for james in these early hours of him being missing they didn't have any idea of the evil that he had encountered while james stood there next to his mom's leg He was still anxious to play when he looked out the entrance of the butcher's shop. Standing there were two young boys. They waved at him, silently telling him to come over to them. They seemed like they wanted to play too, and just like that, as he always did living his life at 100 miles a minute, he ran to them, and they told him they did want to play with them. Come with us. James started following the two boys inside the mall for just a minute or so until one of the boys reaches down and grabs James by the hand. And with that, he led James straight out of the shopping center, never to be seen by his family ever again. While people searched for him and his family cried, begging for their boy to be found. This next part gets really hard to hear, so there's a warning right here if you want to skip past it. Oh, can I skip past it? You cannot. You're stuck with it. (laughs) So, James had been walked between two and three miles, which is four kilometers away from the New Strand Shopping Center. During this walk, the boys dropped him on his head at one point, and he got a big bump on his forehead. He was then brought to a railway in Walton, which is in Liverpool. When the three boys got near the train tracks and they were very much alone with no one to see them, the two boys who had taken James started to torture him and beat him. James had molding paint thrown into his left eye. 
and as he was crying out, they started to throw stones at him. They kicked him, and they beat him with bricks. They placed batteries in his mouth, and eventually they went even further, and they hit him with an iron bar, a rusted railway fish plate that weighed 22 pounds. After this ruthless attack, James had passed away. And this part is even worse, so if you don't want to hear it again, skip forward. The boys had removed James' shoes, socks, underpants, and trousers, and his foreskin was forcibly retracted. When they were finished with him, they laid his body across the tracks and put rubble over top of his head, hoping that when a train hit him, it would make this horrific crime look like an accident. And then they just left. They went home and they acted like nothing had happened. How old were these boys? Ugh, you're going to find out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So in the meantime, James's family has no clue that this horrific tragedy has happened to their baby boy. So they keep searching. That Friday night, family, friends, police, and helicopters were out searching for James. Denise had her brother Ray drive her back to the shopping center and they did another search inside there, but nothing. Then they're back to the police station. And just after midnight, they were taken back to the shopping center. Third time is a charm because this time they're told that CCTV footage had been discovered. Police needed Denise to identify if James was pictured in this footage. So Ralph and Denise sit down. Their anxiety is through the roof because they have no idea what they are about to see. There was 16 security cameras inside the shopping center, and they're showing the first frame. It's a little boy running out of the butcher's shop and into the common area. Denise confirmed this was 100% James. It was her baby. This frame was shot at 3.39 p.m. The next frame shot only one minute later at 3.40 p.m., shows Denise running out of the shop to look for James, her head swinging back and forth as she left before ultimately she runs right and unknowingly further away from her son. And while one frame showed her on the lower level searching for her baby still at 3.40, another frame at the exact same time shows James following those two young boys. And then at 3.42, a frame is shown where James is holding hands with one of these boys, just walking along past the varying stores. And then at 3.43, that frame shows James being led right out of the shopping center. Four minutes from the time James ran away from his mother's leg to the time that he was being brought out of the shopping center and gone forever. Quote, 240 seconds was all it took for them to lure James away from me and get him out of the shopping center. End quote. So quick. But what what kind of boys you would know, do that? It is like, this case is shocking. Okay, so I just sent you the picture of him holding hands with one of the little boys. And this is him being led right out of the shopping center. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I see the one that he's holding hands with is the other one right in front of him. Yes, in the black. That one looks older, but the one he's holding hands with looks short and 
young. Yeah. And it's very eerie because he's just, he's just a little two-year-old just trusting and grabbing hands. and You're just yeah. so trusty. Like breaks my heart. Oh, that is so sad. So Denise and Ralph see this and they're mortified that their son was being led away from the shopping center. But they also felt this weight lifted off their shoulders, a bit of relief because he wasn't being taken by a grown adult, some pedophile. No, he was with two very young boys. They probably wanted to pull a prank and they didn't realize that this would cause this mass hysteria, right? This was the first moment since James had gone missing that Denise was sure she would get him back. She even told her mom the following night, Saturday night, quote, We are going to get him back. I just know it. Two lads have got him, but it's okay because they are young. We will get him back, end quote. That same night, Saturday, Denise got a phone call. She answered it and the caller says, quote, We've got your little boy. She starts yelling at them. Who is this? Where is he? What's going on? But they didn't answer her questions. They just kept repeating, we've got your little boy. And then the disgusting realization sinks in that this was a prank phone call. So she hangs up the phone and was sent into this tailspin that almost threw her right over the edge because what disgusting piece of crap people in this world think that that is okay to do, to call a grieving mother and play a prank. Did they know her or do you think they just looked her number up in the phone book? They either just looked her up or their number was put. Because I was like, how did they get her number? They did, um... They did do two press conferences and they were asking people to come forward with information. So they may have put her phone number out there so that they would be called. Maybe they just looked her up after seeing her name on the news. I do not think they do that anymore. Like there's just too many cruel people in the world that do crap like that. I know. And it's like, why do people do that? I can't even imagine. Like that's not, it's not funny. I don't understand it. It like, it's like you're (laughs) evil. Yeah, why would you ever do that? I mean, you didn't kill the kid, but like you're that's almost just as sick to do. Like you're trying to hurt the family. Exactly. Yes. It's really messed up. It's weird. Yeah. So, oh, like I said, on Friday and Saturday night, they held those press conferences. The first night they had begged for their son and Denise actually crumbled into tears while she was talking and she had to be led off the camera while Ralph stayed and finished. The Saturday night press conference was after they had seen that CCTV footage. So this time they were begging the boys that they saw lure him away like, please bring him back. Nothing bad is going to happen to you if you just bring our baby back safe. Like we promise we won't get you in trouble. We just want our baby. But James' parents had no idea that their baby was not safe and he would not be coming home. Sunday came around, two nights without their baby. How was this possible? Where could he be? Was he cold? Was he being taken care of? Was he crying for her? Denise could not stop thinking about her baby. How is this happening? It's just a bad dream, right? Denise had spent so much time in the police station in that first 24 hours that they finally had to send her home and told her to keep in touch via phone call, but she called them too much. She was calling every 15 minutes and they finally told her she couldn't call them anymore. 
they would contact her first thing if anything was found. So Denise was extra grateful that Sunday when Mandy agreed to take her out searching at 3 p.m. At the same time, Ralph went searching with her brother, Ray. 30 minutes into Denise's search with Mandy, Mandy got radioed. And they say, come back immediately and turn off your radio. Denise couldn't even think. They had found her baby, right? Like, this was all that this could mean. She knew they had him, but she also knew it was probably bad. When they pull up to the police station, Denise rushes in. Police and investigators are there waiting for her at the entrance. Albert Kirby, Geoff McDonald, and Jim Fitzsimmons welcome her back into the station. She raced in there, heart thumping, waiting to scoop her baby up in her arms, she just hoped. But she was put in a room, and she waited there for what seemed like a lifetime. But really, it was just about 40 minutes. Little did she know, they had found James at that railway. But Albert Kirby wanted to drive to the scene first to confirm that it was James Bulger before the news was broken to her. Did a train hit him? Uh, Yeah. Oh, that's how they found him? That's not how they found him, actually. It was confirmed at this point, and lots of family members had also arrived. And when G.F. McDonald walked in the room, she had this feeling that something was just off. So she, she didn't look at him. She thought, if I don't look at him, maybe this cannot be real. But he walks up to her and he places his hand on her knee and said, I'm sorry. Her eyes then shot up and she was looking directly at him now. And she says, sorry for what? Why? Geoff says, quote, we have found him and it's not good news, end quote. And as Denise started to well, she blacked out. An officer that was present at the time said, quote, I just heard an almighty screech, real bottom of the gut stuff, like an animal, I burst into tears because you just knew what that meant. You just knew her heart was broken. End quote. Oh, I, I really hate that cry. I, I've heard it too many times working in the hospital. Yeah, working in the NICU. With babies and stuff. And that is just <sighs> the saddest cry to ever hear. It, it, you do cry when you hear it. I bet. I've never heard it, but it would rip me apart. Oh, yeah. It's the worst. Yeah, I would crumble if I heard that. So, Denise wakes up on the floor, but she just, like, could not get her mind right. She's thinking, well, where is Ralph? Had he heard the news? What's going on? But then she slipped back out of consciousness. When the news was broke to the family, Ralph and Ray were still out searching even though most of the family was present for the news. And they decided that it was probably best for Ralph to hear it from a family member. So a police officer found them and told them that they needed to come into the station. The men were pretty annoyed, like, why we are searching for a missing child we don't want to stop, we need to find him. But they agreed to do what the police were asking of them. And as Ray dropped Ralph off to his car to drive back to the station... Jimmy, Ralph's brother, shows up, and Denise talks about this moment in her book, saying, quote, So that's how Ralph found out that our baby had been murdered, sitting in a random car park on Valentine's, end quote. 
It was February 14, 1993, when James's body was discovered on the railway, just one month before he turned three years old. Two days after his abduction and murder, three boys had found him in Walton. This railroad was only 100 feet away from the Walton police station, which is a different police station than the one that is working with Denise at the time. Oh my goodness, that's so close. And one of the most heartbreaking parallels is that James loved trains. Remember, one of his favorite cartoons was Thomas the Train. And then there he was, on Valentine's Day, found dead on the train tracks. His tiny body was hit by a train after being left there, and it severed his body into two pieces. When the media caught wind of this fact later on, the police felt that they were responsible for telling James's family that he was found this way before they ended up reading it in the paper. When they showed up at the house and told them that this happened, Denise could feel Ralph get stiff. He was tensing up so much, and he had so much hatred for whoever did this. He had to squeeze Denise's hand so hard, all in an effort just to keep his cool. The media had actually tried so hard to get to the scene and take pictures of James's body being removed. But thankfully, the police and forensic team had put up a tent around the body and it was protected from the media. Oh, good. There's no need to get those. Those are not pictures that need to be out there. Denise has actually never found out the full extent of what happened to James, and she never will. She just knew that immediately they determined the death was not an accident. Quote, It's important to say here that I have never found out the exact nature of all that was done to James in his final hours, and I never will. I know as much as my heart can take. End quote. Well, the part that you read, was that from her book? No. Oh, okay. So she didn't know all that? No, she doesn't know all of that stuff still to this day. I guess even when she reads the paper, her husband will, like, black out anything if there's anything about her baby in there. Uh She just, like, doesn't want to know anymore. Yeah, you you wouldn't want that picture in your mind. She also knew that she would not be able to identify her baby but it made her sick to think of him in there at the funeral home all alone. Ralph had actually asked the officers to be the one to identify him, which I understand because it'd almost be like that's your last time seeing him. I can understand both of them where she she couldn't see him like that and he wanted to see him and yeah. maybe say goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. But the police shut it down because they decided that it was too much for any parent to see their child in the way that James was found. So, Ralph's brother Jimmy, the same one who broke the news to Ralph, volunteered to be the one to do this. Mandy explains that Jimmy, James's uncle, was walking out of the room after identifying him and he was just speechless and broken. The pathologist that autopsied James's small body was Dr. Alan Williams. Quote, doing postmortems on young children can be so upsetting, especially if you have kids yourself. At that time, I had a child only slightly older than James. Like all parents, you look at your own child asleep safely in their bed and you pray it will never happen to your children. 
James had a large number of injuries and bruising, and it was all very difficult. End quote. I mean, that's one reason I could never work in the PICU, the pediatric ICU. I'd be too sad with... Oh, yeah, because you would have to see that. Oh, yeah, with children that have been abused and stuff. I just... I don't think I could do that. No, I don't know. I would take it home with me, I think, you know? supposed to leave work at work and I don't think I could separate it it'd be too hard oh it'd be so depressing so good for all those picky nurses I know they're amazing but the NICU's probably hard too I I could also not do that (laughs) yeah in different ways Yeah. yeah so 22 wounds were found on James's head and face and then there were another 20 injuries on his body 42 total The injuries were so abundant that the final killing blow could not be determined. He was determined, though, to be dead long before the train had hit him. He endured a, quote, short period of survival after the attack began. He had deep bruising on his head and a cut that went down to his skull with extensive damage to the back of his head. This is what suggested that bricks and the iron bar had been used. James suffered a hemorrhage at the center of his brain, and then a severe blow to James's face left a large bruise and a grooved mark on the area around his right cheek and ear. So, Denise couldn't handle her son's death. In fact, she downright refused to accept it, and she went into this really depressed fog where she just wandered around aimlessly with no purpose. All of a sudden, she would end up in a room wondering how she got there. At one point, she was at her mom's house, and she heard the radio going. And the announcer comes on to report that the toddler who went missing at the Strand Shopping Center was found dead. In this moment full of grief, denial, and exhaustion, she thought to herself, quote, His poor mom... She must be in bits, end quote. And in that same moment, her brother stormed outside to the news van, banging on the window, quote, have some bloody respect. That two-year-old all over the news had a mom. She is in that house right there, and she can hear every damn word, end quote. Shocked and just catching her brain up to what was going on, she thought, quote, If I was that poor mom, then that meant that my baby was dead, end quote. For a very long time, Denise would not and could not accept that her second child had also died. She was a mom of two, but she was childless. This time, it could have been prevented. She was faced with an evil that she had never seen before, and her life was changed forever. Police released the CCTV footage across all news channels, hoping to get an identification. While they aired the photos, they also questioned more than 60 boys, ones that they found were connected at some point to other assaults or other crimes in the area. But none of them were the murderers. Three days into the murder investigation, one business actually found CCTV footage of James passing by their business on foot, still with two boys. The front of them? 
kind of. It was very blurry, but the boys looked even smaller in this video. They looked even younger. And Jim Fitzsimmons says, quote, But the idea that it could be done by juveniles or even children, it was off the scale. End quote. Mm-hmm. And then the following day, four days into the investigation, it happened. They receive a call from a woman who went to the police station in Walton, very nearby where James was found. And this woman was beside herself because she went in there to tell them something very important. She was with her friends on Friday the 12th when their son had come home. When he walked in, she noticed that he was a mess. He was dirty and he had some paint on his jacket. The young boy had said that he had been with another boy from his school. She says it looks a bit like it could have been him on the footage. It's probably not, though. I just wanted to let you know. Was it a yellow jacket? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty obvious yellow jacket. Yes, it was. And she tells them that his name is John Venables. And he goes to St. Mary's School. After this, Jim contacts the headmistress of the school and asks for John Venables' records to determine whether he was at school on Friday the 12th or not. She replies that no, actually he wasn't there on Friday. He was actually skipping out on school that day with another boy, a boy named Robert Thompson. Robert Thompson was a serial truancer, meaning he would often skip school. This was nothing new. Well, the Thompson family was discovered to live close to where James's body had been found. And then five days into the investigation, on Thursday, February 18th at 7 a.m., officers go to the home of John Venables and they're like, hey, we heard you skipped school last Friday. Do you have the coat that you were wearing that day? And at the same time, different officers go to the home of Robert Thompson. They knock on the door and the officer tells his mom why they are there. They need to talk to Robert. When he was told that he had to come down to the police station for questioning, he starts to cry. Both boys were brought to the police station after being arrested at 7 a.m. and they weren't interviewed until 5 p.m. Robert Thompson and John Venables were both 10 years old. 10? Yeah. Uh, 10. 10 years old. What happened to them? And James was almost three. They were seven years older than him. They had to have been abused themselves or something. Don't you think? Yeah, I don't think they had very good childhoods. But we're getting close to the end of this part. And in the next part, we're going to really explore them and then their trial and everything, but... Oh, my gosh. I'm in shock that they were 10. 10. And I watched this show today, The James Bulger Murder, Inside the Chilling Police Investigation, and it was on 60 Minutes, and, like, wow. I... The second I heard the police tapes and I heard these boys talk... The thought of them being 10 years old is shocking, right? But to hear them talk, even though I knew they were so young, it like took my breath away. 
Like they were children. Probably because they sounded like babies. They yeah. sounded these little baby voices. Like the f- the second the first kid spoke, and it was the first any part of the tapes that I had heard, I was like, whoa. I had to pause it and rewind it because it was like, there's no way. Like, that is a child. I'm still in shock. Yeah. They were interviewed extensively for this nightmarish murder of two-year-old James Bulger. And it was more than shocking. And like I said, this is where we're going to end this episode. In part two, we're going to get into their interviews, their backgrounds, the trial, and the outcome of all of it. Okay, but I need a palate cleanser for sure after this first part. Charlie Waters, I'm going to be giving you a palate cleanser today. A palate cleanser is for when you hear said stories to make you feel better. Do you know what the national animal of Scotland is? It's a unicorn. Did you know that people think unicorns aren't real, but they used to be? Unicorns are really real. Insectic. Mythology, they are a symbol of purity and innocence, as well as masculinity and power. There is dominance and chivalry associated with the unicorn, and that's why it was chosen as Scotland's national animal. I wish I lived there so I can see unicorns every day. Bye. Have a good day. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends. Tell at least five people and onto your social media. We would love it if you helped us continue to make this podcast by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I will literally be obsessed with you. If you have any case suggestions, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. We will also be doing a segment where we share our listeners' stories or questions, anything crazy that they've been through. So definitely email us a story that is personal, something that's happened to you, something creepy. If you are a part of any case and you want to be featured so that you can get the word out about the case you're connected to, please email us here as well. We want to do interviews and speak with people who are connected to these crimes. We want to share everyone's stories. You can follow us on social media for pictures and info on every single case we cover. On Instagram and TikTok, follow us at truecrime underscore podcast, which guys, our TikTok is amazing. It's been growing so good. It's been helping me get the word out there. And our Instagram is so sad. So if you want to support us there and help us spread the word via Instagram, go follow us. You can follow us on Twitter at truecrime underscore pod. 
This podcast is written, hosted, edited, and researched by me, Kayla Waters. My co-host is my mom, Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser giver is my daughter, Charlie Waters. It's a family business, everybody. (laughs) Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at inpajamasmusic. Stick around to get organization info. A great organization to support is called Victim Support. You can visit their website, victimsupport.org.uk. They have a homicide service. So in 2019 to 2020, they offered support to 1,482 families and friends following the death of a loved one from either a murder or a manslaughter. These families are greatly affected by what has happened to their loved one. And so they started this homicide service. The police can refer these families to this organization or you can contact them directly. You can contact them by calling their National Homicide Service at 0300-303-1984. You can also request support online if you go to this organization and find that link. They will assign a homicide caseworker for a face-to-face meeting with these family members They help people navigate and know what to expect from the criminal justice system, and they're just providing someone independent to talk to. They provide endless services. They will help with practical needs, such as the funeral, childcare, transportation, and much more. They help victims access financial assistance, such as state benefits and compensation claims. So please visit this website if you or a family member could benefit from it and also go support them. So head on over and donate. The UK also has a Crime Stoppers. You can visit them at crimestoppers-uk.org. They have an anonymous login and they want you to speak up and this will help them fight crimes. You can donate to them and help them continue fighting crimes, or you can call them and make anonymous reporting. You can let them know if you know anything about a crime. On their website, you can see their most wanted people. And then again, you can contact them securely. Call them at 0800-555-111. It is completely anonymous. You can also do it online through an anonymous form. They have a section where you can see how they keep you anonymous and make sure that this is really legit. So visit this website. Help them keep fighting crime. <laughs>